So let's open it up and get into it for us today in the book of Hosea. And God willing, uh, we'll be in Hosea 4, we'll be expounding verses 17 through 19. The title of the message is, A Sour Drink. A Sour Drink. In our previous verses last week, God warned the kingdom of Judah to not partake in the sins of their sister kingdom of Israel. Although the kingdom of Israel made up the vast majority of the Jews, there were no role model for the rest of the Jews, the minority, to follow. They probably thought, like the people in America today, that they had life all figured out. But the majority rarely does. <laughs> Nevertheless, people usually follow the crowd, don't they? So a warning for Judah to not follow her larger sister kingdom, Israel, was certainly needed at that time. So God gave it. And now in our verses today, we are going to hear some very sad words concerning the people of Israel. And they apply to a lot of people today. And some people mistakenly think they apply to them. And we're going to cover that too. To the prophet Hosea, God said, if you'll look with me in verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. I thank you, God. I'm so encouraged, Father, um, by the responses we've received, the people writing in for help, and the gospel being preached around the world. Father, thank you for giving us a part in that, for letting us be truly part of the body of Christ and his worldwide ministry. We thank you for the good news that he's given us, and we believe in him today. And I pray that everyone here today uh, will, if they have not come to know Christ as their Savior, will believe in him as their Savior. And I pray that we'll all be edified by the words we hear today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Now, Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons. And being one of Joseph's sons, uh, the, the man Israel adopted Ephraim, his grandson, as one of his own boys, spiritually speaking, spiritually adopted him. And so it made him one of the ten tribes, or one of the twelve tribes, rather, of Israel. And in this case, one of the, 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 the ten that split off from the southern tribes. And it was Jeroboam, who was of the tribe of Ephraim, that led the rebellion and became king of the nation of Israel. So you had an Ephraimite who was king of the Israelites whenever all that started. And because of this, I'm sure, is why the tribe of Israel is sometimes described uh, as the ten tribes. I'm sorry, the, tri the, the, the man Ephraim, excuse me, is used to describe the ten tribes that revolted. Does it make sense? Ephraim uh, uh, had... Uh, uh, his offspring, Jeroboam, Jeroboam led the revolt, and now they're called Ephraim sometimes. Just as for the entire nation, they're also called Israel sometimes, who also was a man representing the whole nation. Make sense? Hope so. So Ephraim is all the same as the kingdom of Israel. But it's referring to them more of a personal sense than a national sense. God said Ephraim was joined to idols. And the Hebrew word that's translated as joined here was used to describe the, the curtains in the tabernacle that were coupled together, linked together. 
Ephraim was joined to idols. They were linked together. They were a team. The nation of, or the kingdom rather, of Israel at that time had given themselves over to idolatry rather than to God. They were hooked up with the idols. The Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. We are joined to the Lord Jesus in holy spiritual matrimony on account of our faith in Him as our Savior. We, by the covenant of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, are coupled together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, outside of your text where it says Ephraim is joined to idols, write down Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, which says, For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined, see that, unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So as a man and his wife are joined together, and Christ and his church are joined together, so Ephraim, or the ten northern tribes, were joined to idols. Very, very sad. It's as if they said, okay, we understand the choice here between God and idolatry. Knowing that choice, we knowingly and willfully reject God. And we choose our idols. Ouch. Once we are joined to Jesus, there is no going back. We belong to Him forever. And in the same way, these Israelites were joined to their idols, and there was no turning back for them. They had made their decision to turn from God to their, their father's idols and be joined to them. So God said, let them alone. What are we to do with them? Let them alone. Let them continue in their sin. And face the judgment of their wicked ways. We'll stand in their way no longer. Now this brings up a very important and troubling matter for some people. Because I have a lot of people that I've spoken to in my ministry. And I'm sure if God allows me to keep living and working. Then I'll continue to have them right in as I have over the years. Who are convinced that they're like Ephraim. <clears throat> that they've done something bad enough. Long enough. And now that God says, ah, oh, let them alone. What have we to do with them? Just let them go on and live in their sin and die and go to hell. We want no part of them. And they feel that God has abandoned them, turned them over to a reprobate mind, and kicked them to the curb and no longer wants to save them. They're convinced that God's no longer interested in turning them back from their sins to salvation and now all they have to look forward to is fire judgment and indignation. So when we read something like this in the Bible and we preach on something like this in the Bible, if they were to hear that message, or if they were to read a scripture like we just read now, Ephraim is joined to idols, let them alone, they begin getting very afraid and they fear that maybe God has left them alone to die in their sins, even though they want to be saved with all their hearts. So here's a question that we can ask ourselves today, and perhaps you've asked yourself, or if you're online, you've asked yourself. How do I know that God has not let me alone? How do I know that I have not lived in rebellion for so long that God finally says, I, I don't want them? I remember uh, talking to Miss Ann January's husband in the hospital not too many days before he died. And he wanted to be a Christian. Do you know what his concern was? How do I know 
that God really wants me? That is such a common question. To someone who feels unworthy of his salvation. But you know what? Nobody's worthy of his salvation. You read over in the book of the Revelation. And God says, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Now that book and those seals... If you're familiar with the book of the Revelation, it's a very mysterious book, isn't it? But boy, we we uncovered a lot of the mystery, didn't we, when we were in the book of the Revelation? To break the seals and open that book meant who is worthy to allow the gospel to be executed and man to be redeemed from their sins and the whole world to be renewed and everything to be made right. Who is worthy to kick it off and let it run its course and, and, and refresh the world and raise the dead and give life and light where death and darkness had always been. Who's worthy to do that? And John said, I started crying. Because it was quiet and nobody did silence mic drop. Now that's not the words he used, of course. Nobody was worthy. And finally someone says, Oh, don't cry. There is one that's worthy. His name was Jesus. He was the only one worthy. So it's a question. How do I know that God hasn't kicked me to the curb? Do you know how I know that God wanted Mr. January to be saved? Because Mr. January knew he wasn't worthy. And he wanted to be saved. He had a contrite heart. He was humbled. And wanted the salvation God offered him. How do I know that God has not let me alone? How do I know that God has not given up on me and turned me over to my sins? If you are sorry for your sins. Then God has not let you alone to die in them. Mark it down. The Israelites were not contrite. God had sent messenger after messenger after messenger to Israel. And they hardened their necks. They stood strong in their ways. And they rejected the word God gave them. Not interested. Had I gone and sat by Mr. January's bed and said, Mr. January, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? Had he said, I don't need that God stuff. I'm good enough like I am, or I don't believe in all of that. Well, we'd had a problem. That may have been God saying, Miss January's turned to idols, let them alone. He said, I want to be saved. But how do I know God wants me? Oh, that's beautiful. The Israelites were not contrite. They were not sorry for their idolatry. They loved their idolatry and they despised their God. Had Israel received God's correction, then they would have experienced God's contrition in their heart. You get that? Had Israel would have listened to God's word that told them they were wrong, that told them they were in trouble, that begged them to turn around and come back to Him. Had they received that word and believed it, they would have thought, oh no. God, we're so sorry. We should have never done this. We've got to do something here. 
We're going to get judged. That was not Israel. If they would have had a contrite heart, they would have been saved. If you are contrite for your sins, then it is only because you have accepted God's correction concerning your sins. Does that make sense? I can promise you this. Had Ephraim confessed their idolatry and sought God's forgiveness and grace, God would have delivered them from their sins in a moment. But they would not. I remember when Jesus was on earth, he looked at Israel and said, Oh, Israel, oh, Israel, you who destroyed the prophets <laughs> that I sent you. He said, How often I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen does her little chicks, but you wouldn't let me. That's what he told them. You wouldn't let me. A contrite heart is the work of God. In the people who believe him. You listen to that? A contrite heart. That means somebody that says. Man I should have. I'm wrong for my sin. I'm wrong. Doesn't mean that they've conquered their sin. It doesn't mean that they're living better. And have changed their whole life around. We don't have the power to do that. It means they understand. Their guilt. They acknowledge, I'm wrong. A contrite heart is the work of God and the people who believe Him. Here's a kingdom truth for you. God is close to a contrite heart. God is close to a contrite heart. Sometimes I'll get on the elevator at work. And some woman with some crazy amount of perfume had got on there before me. And that elevator opened. There's nobody there. I step on that elevator. Whoo! I get blown away by that perfume. Elevator closes. Me and that perfume right up together. When you smell that perfume, you may not see the woman, but you know she's close by. When there is a contrite heart in a person, you may not see God, but God is close by that person. It's His work in the heart. Psalm 34 verse 18, write this down in your margin. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is nigh, that means near unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Oh, man, that's good. If you are sad over your sin, I'm not talking about feelings. I'm not talking about feelings. I'm talking about in your mind the, 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 the condition of contrition. That you acknowledge, I'm guilty. Sometimes, because of spiritual struggles, emotions go completely away. And we don't have them anymore. Especially if we're very afraid. The ability to be able to process the, the thought of you possibly going to hell and how to fix that. It pushes the feelings away. Let me give you an example. Brother Shepherd, now Brother Shepherd's still in full-time law enforcement. I'm retired from it, but I have something very similar to it. Protecting the judge. But we both have that background. 
How many of y'all were ever in combat in the military? Anybody? Combat in the military? Nobody? How many of y'all ever worked something where you had to be around trauma? You? All right. When you are around something like that, how many of y'all ever worked in a funeral home? You? You? No? Okay. Would you like to? Okay. <laughs> when you are around something like that, those of you who've been in that position, you have to push the emotions aside. And if you don't push the emotions aside, you'd be, oh, <laughs> they'd be out there crying, you'd be out there crying with them, and nothing would get done. You work at a funeral home, you've got to push that emotion aside. You work in trauma, you better push them aside. It better be all business, because you've got to think. In the same way, spiritually, when we're dealing with the, the issue of, I may spend eternity in hell burning forever, that's a scary thought. Far worse than any trauma that I've experienced in law enforcement or Brother Shepherd's experience in law enforcement or any of y'all have ever experienced. And so it's a natural God-given thing sometimes for the mind to accept the fact it has to push away the emotion. Does that make sense? For the mind to accept and deal with the fact it has to push away the emotion. So contrition is not an emotion. It's a state of mind. It's an acknowledgement of the truth of God's correction in your life. God says you're wrong and your mind says, God, I am wrong. I'm bad wrong. And I need some help. I got to get this fixed. It's not going, oh, feeling like that. No. So when a person is in the state of mind like that, the Lord is nigh unto them that have that broken heart. And He saves those who have a contrite spirit, a contrite attitude. When I was lost, I remember thinking to myself one day, if I was God, I would not forgive me of some of my sins. Because I knew they were wrong, I did them anyway, and I just went on. And I remember thinking, you know, I, if I was God, I wouldn't save me. I'd just let me go to hell. I remember thinking that, and I, I just knew it in the honesty of my heart. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I won't be saved. I remember thinking, I, I've known better, but I've sinned anyway, so I wouldn't blame God if He didn't save me. My heart was broken. I wasn't crying, but my heart was broken. I was contrite in my spirit about my sin, knowing that I was unworthy of His mercy. I felt like God was a thousand miles away. But the truth was, that was His work that made me think that. And he was near to the contrite. You see? The God that felt so far away was right there close doing a work in me. God was the one who made me contrite to begin with. So if your heart desires God's mercy, then it's because God's grace has humbled your heart so you could discern your need of him. But Ephraim would not humble himself. The nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was a stubborn idolater against God, so God had left her alone. God said, look in verse 18, their drink is sour. I'll take a drink to that. Their drink is sour. Now, that doesn't mean, when you read that verse, that doesn't mean that they're drinking a sour drink. They're not having lemonade 
They're not drinking lemon juice. They're not drinking fermented milk. They're not drinking the drink. They are the drink. You see the difference? They're not drinking the drink. They are the drink. Their drink is sour. What does God mean when He says Israel's drink is sour? Well, when God created each and every one of us, He created us for a very specific purpose. He created the angels for a specific purpose. He put the sun in the sky for a specific purpose. He created me and you for a specific purpose. Last week I read a quote from a rock star that said, Success is being able to earn a living at doing something you really love. But that's not true. Success isn't doing what you love to do. Success is doing what you were created to do. Success isn't having a job that's fun. It's having a purpose that's fulfilled. Does that make sense? To illustrate this kingdom truth, God sometimes likens the nation of Israel to a grapevine. He calls them His grapevine. Now when a farmer plants a grapevine, he can only have one expectation. And that's to get grapes out of that vine, Brother Doug. That's to get sweet grapes out of that vine. That's to have some nice grape juice to drink out of that vine. You follow me? That's the expectation God has for that vine. He plants the vine. He cares for the vine. He waters the vine. And then he waits for the vine to bear the fruit. So he can partake of the sweet juice thereof. In the same way the Bible says God planted the nation of Israel like a grapevine. God created the vine. God prepared the holy land that he took them to when he took them out of Israel. He prepared the holy land, uh, holy land like a garden. Tilling up the soil, preparing it for Israel to go in. So the holy land was prepared for them just like you would prepare a land for a garden to, or a grapevine to put in. He planted Israel in the best fertile ground there. And he provided for her and he protected her from her enemies. His grapevine. And when God waited for Israel to follow his word that he may enjoy the spiritual drink from that nation that he planted. Something went wrong. God wanted to drink from the sweet cup of Israel's obedience. The sweet cup of Israel's love and faithfulness and righteous adherence to his word. And for a while Israel produced that sweet obedience to God's word. But ultimately and knowingly they turned from him to the idols of the nations around them. Write this down in your margin. Deuteronomy 32, 32. Deuteronomy 32, 32. Speaking of rebellious Israel, God said... Quote, their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their drink is sour. Now, how many of y'all have had the pleasure... How many of y'all have had the pleasure of walking into the kitchen, grabbing a gallon of milk? I mean, you've got your heart set on that milk, brother. Maybe you're going to dip some cookies in it. 
Maybe you're going to pour yourself a bowl of cereal because your wife won't cook for you. Whatever it is, I don't know. But you've got your heart set on that milk. And you open that milk and, whoo, or worse than that, you don't smell. Now, I've learned to smell. I've learned the hard way to smell before I pour. But let's say you don't smell and you pour it. How many of y'all had the distinct pleasure of putting that? You have, how many? Raise your hand. You tasted sour milk. That's bad stuff. Nobody considered it a pleasure. This is the idea that God has that He's portraying to us about Israel. Now, folks, you can take good milk, set it out, leave it alone. It will turn sour. But you can't take sour milk, put it in the fridge, refrigerator, set it out, pray over it, whatever you want to do. It's not going to be unsour again. It's too late for that milk. What do you do with sour milk? You pour it out. That's what he's describing for the ten tribes here. He's saying their drink's sour. It's too late. They've coupled themselves together with idols. They have knowingly, purposefully rejected me and my word. And they have turned and said, I'll take this instead. That was their decision that they made. And now God says it's too late. They're sour. Sour milk never has a contrite heart. But a contrite heart is sweet to the taste of God. Do you see the difference? If you have a contrite heart, oh, that's sweet milk. God won't throw you out. He saves those that have a contrite spirit, the Word says. So when God says that Israel is drink is sour, He's not saying that Israel's drinking a sour beverage. He's saying Israel has become a sour beverage. The vine I planted is producing sour rebellion rather than the sweet obedience to my Word. God planted Israel like a vine, and now they have produced sour grapes for him. In Jeremiah 2.21, God said, quote, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine. You were a noble vine when I planted thee. Holy a right seed, and then, I'm sorry, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Israel wasn't simply not bearing much fruit. They had become a degenerate vine altogether. A vine that God didn't know, that God didn't plant. God said, look back in your text, they have committed whoredom continually. That is, they purposely bore the sour grapes of rebellion unto their false gods. God said, look back in your text, her rulers with shame do love, give ye. Now, that's a rough translation, folks. You can't just read that and say, oh, that makes sense. That's a rough translation. A modern translation says, quote, her rulers take pleasure in shame. That's easier to understand. Instead of loving what was holy, Israel's rulers loved what was shameful, and they took pleasure in that shameful stuff. Instead of leading Israel in paths of righteousness for God's namesake, they led them in paths of lewdness and shame. Listen, when you see the White House celebrating and promoting sexual perversion and godlessness of all types, that like we do today, because the White House does it, you know that your country is in trouble. America's rulers take pleasure in shame. For this reason, God said, verse 19, as we begin to close, 
the wind hath bound her up in her wings. When my wife comes home from the grocery store, a lot of times I'll try to meet her outside if I'm home. And they get all those grocery bags and stuff. And I've got a technique like you all do. I run my hand through them and 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 through them. And I, I, as a man, a man, see, he'd rather make one trip than a woman. Woman's smarter. She'll grab a few and come back for it. All not a man. He just binds them, gathers them all and just tries to do like that and get them inside the door and everything. That's the idea here. Just like we would grab several sacks of groceries from the back seat of our vehicle, the wind is gathering up America's once great institutions. I got you here. I got you here. Why? Because her leaders are taking pleasure in the shame. And so the wind is gathering them up. Now, when Richard gathers up the groceries, he takes them inside to eat them. But not so with the wind. When the wind gathers something up, she blows it away. Just like a tornado. Blows it away. Gathers it up and disperses it. Look back in your text. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. In other words, God's saying, all their false worship which they took pleasure in, all the sin perversion they took pleasure in, shall bring the nation of Israel to shame. And we'll leave with this kingdom truth. Those who took pleasure in that which was shameful, in the end, come to shame themselves. Those who take pleasure in that which is shameful will in the end come to shame themselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. God, we're so grateful that you describe things so thoroughly, so accurately, so vividly for us. You give us pictures in our minds of the grapevine you planted, which was the potential they had to bear fruit. But the sour grapes they gave, the free will that they did exercise in turning from you to idols. Thank you, Lord, for the contrition which we know is sweet to your taste and the work of God who's near to those who have it. I pray, Father God, today, if there's anyone here that has not trusted Christ as their Savior, perhaps they've been in a state of unbelief, perhaps they've been caught up in religion and never really understood the gospel, I pray whatever their situation is, dear Lord God, that they will acknowledge the truth that they are sinners, that you are the one true God, and that you sent your Son to die for their sin. I pray they will believe that truth, accept Him as their Savior, and be saved today. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.